Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we open these this book of Jonah again today, and we read these ancient words, we pray that you would be at work in us, that you would open our eyes to see your radiant glory and the splendor of your reign, that we would stand in awe before you today, and that we would be humbled to see that you wield your power for our good. We are grateful for the book of Jonah and the ways in which you are at work in our lives through it even now. And so we ask that you would do that work today in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning with a confession that when I was in high school, I got caught cheating on an algebra test. I hadn't studied for my test because I was on a family vacation, so I made a plan. I brought some notes with me to the test. I left that day feeling like I had gotten a good grade. Unfortunately, My master plan did not go off all that smoothly. My cheat sheet, my notes, had fallen onto the floor, and I left class without realizing it. The next day, my teacher confronted me with that page of notes. And to make things even better, when she pulled it out of her desk drawer, I saw that I had actually written my name at the top of it. (laughs) You can rest assured this morning, that I was not and am not a criminal mastermind. (laughs) As soon as I saw it, as soon as she pulled that sheet of paper out, my stomach dropped the way that it always does when we're caught red-handed. I thought, that's it. I'm done for. I'll be expelled. I'll never recover from this. My mind was racing, dreading all the consequences of my terrible choices. I didn't make any excuses. I didn't talk about how I had seen other people cheating at school. When she told me the grade that I had earned on my test was actually a zero, I didn't argue with her. She was a notoriously strict teacher, as I think most algebra teachers are. (laughs) 
And she told me, though, that even though I had earned a zero, she would give me a second chance. I could take a new test that day, right after class. I hadn't studied, so I knew I wouldn't do well. But as soon as she said that I could take the test again, a wave of relief washed over me. It was going to be okay. My life wasn't over. I can tell you this morning that I don't remember much of anything about algebra. But I do remember that second chance. It made an impact on me. I had faced my guilt, owned it, regretted it, despaired over it even. And then everything changed. I wasn't innocent, that much is sure. I couldn't undo what I had done, but I would have a second chance. And that made all the difference, as second chances often do. As we resume our study of Jonah this morning, chapter 3 opens with this man, this prophet of God, on dry land again after three long days. When we met him in chapter 1, he was living the life he wanted as a prophet in Israel, advising kings and calling his countrymen to repentance and faithfulness. He didn't want anything else in life. This was the life that he wanted. But then a word from God came, calling him to pack his bags and to go to a place called Nineveh, the capital city, or at least a very important city in the Assyrian Empire, in order to proclaim God's word there. It was not what he wanted to hear, as we've seen. So he ran in the other direction, as we saw two weeks ago. And he resigned himself to death for his disobedience as he fled. What's clear is that he would rather run and risk death than go to Nineveh. And God responded to this disobedient prophet with relentless pursuit, as we've seen in this book. Through a storm that threatened to rip apart the ship that he was on, and the appointment of a massive fish to swallow him whole, God was chasing after Jonah to bring him to his senses. God would have been justified in letting Jonah run headlong into his own destruction, but he didn't do that. Instead, he pursued this man and brought him to the point of repentance, which we saw last week. And in the first verses of chapter 3, God calls out to Jonah again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, we read, the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is an almost verbatim quote from the opening lines of the book back in chapter 1, when God first called Jonah and commissioned him to this work. He's being given a second chance. Even though he thoroughly flunked his first test, God is letting him retake it. So Jonah prayed from the depths, from the belly of the fish. He knows that he's guilty. He knows that he deserves judgment, but he also knows that God is merciful. Now that God has relented of Jonah's destruction, The prophet has been ejected onto dry land, though he certainly has not come out unscathed. His days inside the fish were days of despair and misery that none of us can imagine, capped by what was surely an uncomfortable experience of being ejected back onto dry land. God is determined to reach the people of Nineveh, and perhaps more significantly than that, he's determined to do it through Jonah. That's an important thing to see here. He has chosen someone who does not want to go, and he has not accepted Jonah's resignation letter. He doesn't want just anyone to go to Nineveh. He wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. 
As he has done elsewhere in Scripture, God is working through the life of a prophet to illustrate and demonstrate truths about himself. Hosea is a good example of the point I'm making here. The book of Hosea is a vivid example of this. He's another one of the minor prophets who lived around the same time as Jonah and whose book opens the same way that Jonah's does. The first, book, uh, the first verse of the book of Hosea says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri. Very similar to what we read in Jonah chapter 1. And like Jonah, Hosea is given a very difficult assignment. God tells him to marry an adulterous woman, to have a family with her. He tells this servant of his, Hosea, to love this woman, to be faithful to her, and even to pay a great price to redeem her from her infidelity. And he explains that this living parable of Hosea's life represents God's relationship with his own unfaithful people and his unfailing fidelity toward them. Through the life of Hosea, God reveals his faithfulness, and so it will be with Jonah. Through this man whom he has chosen, a disobedient and angry man, God will reveal essential and foundational features of his character and relationship with a wayward people. It is a living parable in which God has called Jonah to play a key role so that God can show the world who he is at his very heart. We see a few glimpses of that heart here in chapter 3, beginning with the way that God uses unlikely means to produce unlikely results. Jonah is not the man that any of us would have chosen for this work. His resume as a prophet is pretty short. He does not have the track record of faithfulness and success that some other prophets do. The only example that we have in Scripture of his prophetic work is recorded in the book of 2 Kings, where he got to deliver good news about God's plan to bless Israel. It was not exactly the sort of assignment that tested his resolve or his heart. He is unproven. It would be like hiring someone for an important position at your company. But rather than hiring someone with years of field experience and sterling references, the company hires someone who has only one day of experience and who nobody knows well enough to give a recommendation letter for. But it's more than just Jonah's inexperience, of course, that makes him an odd choice. It's also the significance of the assignment that he's being given. He's being called to go to Nineveh on a mission beyond the borders of Israel to extend the kingdom of God into the world, and not only into the nations at large, but into the Assyrian Empire of all places. Nineveh has been referred to in this book by God, both in chapter 1 and here in chapter 3, as a great city. It's not a comment on how much God likes the city of Nineveh, but on the size of this tremendous city and its influence in the world. In chapter 4, we'll, we'll read that there are actually 120,000 people who live there. Verse 3 of chapter 3 tells us it's an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. This is probably a reference to the whole Ninevite metroplex, the, the city that exists outside the walls of Nineveh proper. The point here is that Nineveh is the ancient equivalent of a mega city. And on top of that, it's a key city in a vast empire whose reach is growing during Jonah's lifetime. Jonah's day, the Assyrian Empire's borders extended from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Persian Gulf. It's already massively influential and expansive, but within a century, it will more than double in size. 
The laws and culture which radiate out from Nineveh will shape the lives of a significant portion of the entire world's population. There really isn't a modern parallel for the importance of the city of Nineveh. As significant and influential as New York City might be for global commerce or Hollywood might be for shaping culture, neither of them rival Nineveh in terms of the scope of influence in the world at large. It is a massive city with tremendous significance, and God aims to have it. Given those details, we might assume that God would assume a group of prophets to send for this important work, a team that corresponds to both the size and the significance of Nineveh itself, a team of hundreds, perhaps, of the very best. But he doesn't do that. He chooses one man, and an unqualified one at that. And on top of all of that, the man he chooses turns out to be a deserter. But God calls him again. Were it not God calling, we would rightly assume the worst. One man, and a reluctant one at that, walking into the ancient equivalent of New York City or Beijing or Istanbul to tell them that they stand guilty before a just and holy God whose judgment would soon fall unless these people repent, it's not a winning strategy unless God is at work in it. When Jonah arrives in verse 4, we read that he began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's not a message we expect to attract a large audience. In our day, if Jonah were living and proclaiming this message today, we wouldn't be surprised to start seeing cancel Jonah start trending on Twitter. His message is an unpopular one. We see that elsewhere in Scripture when the very same warning was proclaimed among the Israelites by other prophets, such as when Jeremiah was sent to the court of the Israelite king to call the nation to repentance and faithfulness to God. He proclaimed there in the presence of the king and the king's court, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you and listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will destroy this house, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. It's a dire warning, delivered by the prophet that God had appointed to call his covenant people to repentance and faithfulness to him. These are people whose national identity is rooted in God's deliverance and faithfulness. But when they hear Jeremiah's warning, they do not respond well. The very next verses say, When Jeremiah had finished speaking, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. They arrest and condemn Jeremiah. They want to kill him for daring to tell them that God does not abide with sin and injustice. So in a city like Nineveh, we might assume that Jonah will, even, will endure even worse treatment, that his message will be met with even more hostility. But that isn't what happens. Verse 5 tells us that the people of the city believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. He's barely been preaching for a day, and his prophetic ministry is already bearing fruit across the city. People aren't rejecting him or his message. They're humbling themselves and repenting throughout the city and even in the palace. 
The next three verses explain that the word reached the king of Nineveh. He rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. The whole city is turning upside down. Everyone from the king himself to the poorest family and even the cattle and sheep are fasting, hoping that God will see it. All of them are wearing sackcloth, a deliberately uncomfortable garment worn to show humility and a contrite heart. And the king is sitting, not on a throne, but in ashes. The city has heard Jonah's message and responded, not in pride and anger, but in humility and sorrow. It is not the outcome any of us would have bet on. After all, what reason do these people have to listen to Jonah? He's a foreign preacher from some small town and some far-off subjugated nation, which Assyria is currently demanding tributes from. They are powerful, influential, and credit their successes to the gods whose temples adorn their remarkable city. There is no way to account for this incredible turn of events apart from the fact that God willed it and God brought it to bear because God uses unlikely means to produce unlikely results. There is hope for us in these things. For all of us who doubt whether we are qualified to tell people about Jesus Christ, who wonder whether there are others who are better suited or better prepared or even more enthusiastic, Jonah's ministry reminds us that God enjoys working through those who none of us would have bet on. And that means he works through people like you and me. The lesson to be learned here is certainly not that Jonah was in any way remarkable, but that the God he serves is. And because that's true, we can count on him doing remarkable things. And that's very good news because God delights in the repentance of sinners. What we see in this passage and what God reveals about himself here is something which ought to encourage us and give us great joy because God works in amazing ways to bring, to bring about very unlikely outcomes, all so that he can receive the humble repentance of thousands of people and then turn away his just anger toward them. After Jonah's first day in the city, word begins to spread from person to person about the message that he's preaching. Before long, as we've seen already, it reaches the king. There's no indication in this passage that Jonah himself ever spoke to the king, actually. Instead, God acquires a city full of messengers for himself to relay this warning to one another until it reaches every single person there, even the one who sits at the top. And having humbled himself, he orders the city to do likewise. And their belief is amazing, even if a little undeveloped. It's a funny visual, I think. People running around all the barns and stables in the city, trying to get every animal in town to wear sackcloth. It's clear, it is clear, the king does not know what he's doing. He's trying everything, doing his level best to prove that he and the people of his city are listening. And near the end, we hear words from him that ought to sound familiar to us. After commanding the city to humble themselves as he has, he says, 
Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It ought to sound familiar because back in chapter 1, when Jonah was running from God aboard a ship in the midst of a horrendous storm that God himself had brought about, the captain of the ship implores Jonah to pray, saying, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Twice in this short book, we had this repeated theme that turning toward God and looking for his compassion and mercy is the hope of salvation in the face of destruction. The sailors and the Ninevite king, they don't know everything. They're clearly confused on some of the finer points. They may run around putting clothes on their cows in an attempt to show their contrition, but what they do seem to have a handle on is that the only hope of escaping the just judgment of God is by casting themselves wholly on his mercy. And then in the final verse of this chapter, we read that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Some people read this passage, and they see the people's evidently genuine humility and repentance. They get to verse 10, and they think, wow, they really got God's attention. Their actions were so compelling, their repentance so genuine, that they actually got God to change his mind about them. But I don't think that's the right way to think about this at all. For one thing, Scripture is quite clear. God does not change his mind. How could he, after all? He knows everything, and he knows everything that is yet to happen. So the idea that he could change his mind suggests that he learned something he didn't know already and was compelled to change his perspective. A God who can change his mind isn't really a God at all, just a more powerful version of one of us. The God of the Bible does not change his mind. So what's going on here? I think the point here is not that God has changed, but that the people have changed to align with God's perfect will, because he delights in the repentance of sinners. He moves in mysterious, sometimes unseen, but always remarkable ways to bring about the life-changing realization that apart from him is darkness and death, and that true hope that cuts through that darkness, that brings life to dead things, is found in the merciful heart of God. This whole chapter reinforces the point that it isn't God who's changed, but the people of Nineveh. The bulk of the verses that we've read together this morning are dedicated to explaining how dramatic that change has been and how it's born out of a genuine and heartfelt repentance. The whole city is wearing sackcloth to show their humility. Every person and animal in the city is fasting. Their actions show that they're serious. They aren't just saying the words that they think Jonah will want to hear. And that point is made even more strongly for us in the details of verse 6, where the king removes his royal robe to replace it with sackcloth before sitting in ashes. It's a symbolic act, but an important one. He's laying aside his claim to authority before Jonah's God. It's a surprising thing with the king with this sort of power, the sort of power that the king of Nineveh has to make himself like the lowest peasant in his kingdom to show that he does not challenge the authority of Jonah's God. They really believe. Even if the generations after them in Assyria do not, this city and these people do. And they don't just believe Jonah. Verse 5 says that they believe God. They understand what Pastor Bruce explained to us last week as we looked at chapter 2, 
that they stand guilty before God and under his judgment, and that their only hope is his mercy. And that's what we see in this chapter's final verse. God relents. It doesn't mean he changed his mind, but that once he had drawn them to the point of repentance, he accepted it. And I venture to say that he was glad to receive it. It is what he ordained for his joy and because of his compassion for these people. It's a moment echoed elsewhere in Scripture, specifically in Jonah chapter eight, or Jeremiah rather, chapter 18, when the Word of God, uh, which record the Word of God when he said, "If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it." God's desire is not the destruction of the Ninevites, but their repentance, which he stands ready to receive. His relenting is his love for them, his joy in their repentance and his delight to receive it. It is what he willed to take place, and now that he has brought it about by his sovereign grace, he takes pleasure in pouring out the mercy that these people have put all of their hope in. God does not change. He is just. So he does not overlook sin. He is holy, so he cannot. And he is gracious and compassionate and merciful toward those who call out to him. He relents of disaster, though the guilt remains. The people of Nineveh cannot undo the wicked things that they have done. They can't undo the evil that they've carried out. They cannot unshed the blood that they've spilled. And in justice, God will answer that guilt with fierce and relentless fury. But that fury will not fall in the heads of those who look for his mercy. It will fall on his son who takes their place. He is the substitute who, according to 2 Corinthians 5, brings about the reconciliation of sinners with God by satisfying his justice and pouring out his love. So Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God delights in the repentance of sinners. It is not a change of his heart toward people, but a consistency with his very deepest affections. Often, people think that the heart of God revealed in the Old Testament is one of judgment and wrath, but what we see here in Jonah 3 and what we see through Jonah 3 as we look forward to the coming of Christ is that God's deepest heart is one of compassion and affection even for those who have run furthest from him. And that is good news for us. Because God loves us enough to do for us as he does here in this book. To send messengers of his word into into our own lives. To draw us close and lead us to the heartbreaking moment where we see our utter hopelessness and guilt before him. So that in that moment, he can receive our fragile faith and give us hope in his merciful provision. Like the Ninevites, we are the ones who change, not him. And he delights to receive our repentance, no matter how far we've run from him in the past. And that is because God's grace extends to the utmost. As we've already seen this morning, the conversion of the Ninevites is amazing because of its scope. The whole city was apparently affected by Jonah's ministry, from the throne room to the lowest household. And that is truly amazing. It's a miracle on par with many others in Scripture. So incredible that many have said they simply don't believe it. They just don't buy that a whole city on a massive scale was brought to its knees and suddenly moved to turn toward the God of the Israelites. 
But this book demands us to accept the seemingly impossible. That God can and does create the sort of spiritual transformation uh, transformation among a few, such as the sailors on the ship together in chapter 1, or among a city like we see here in chapter 3. That he moves not just among individuals, stirring hearts to repentance and to draw them close, but among families and communities and people groups and nations. We see that throughout Scripture, not just here in Jonah, and it is amazing. But I think that there's something even more amazing happening here in this chapter. More amazing than that this whole city repents, but it's that this city repents. These people repent. It's difficult to conceive of a people less likely to turn toward God in humility than the Ninevites. They're proud and successful. Their city is full of temples to gods which they think have given them victory and made them rich and will continue to do so. They are a bloodthirsty people. Yet, despite these circumstances, they listen to Jonah. And this stands in stark contrast to the Israelites, who were confronted with prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them of God's righteous anger toward them and calling them to repentance. The people who, by all accounts, had the most compelling reasons to listen, didn't, and the people that we least expect to listen, do. The Ninevites have no history with the God of Scripture, no examples of His supremacy, no proof of His authority, yet they hear His Word and believe. Nothing in this book goes the way we expect it to go. There's no way to account for the stunning turn of these people toward God apart from God's gracious intervention in their lives and His merciful work to break their pride and soften their hearts. And in their repentance, God is revealing this third essential truth that no one No one can carry themselves beyond God's ability to reach for His purposes of showing mercy and revealing His glory. In this Ninevite revival, our own assumptions about the lost are confronted because this passage challenges our assumptions about the people in our own lives who we think will never come to faith. The people who we think are too far from God, who have deep-rooted beliefs which set them at odds with God for one reason or another. Those who mock faith as a fairy tale, who dismiss Scripture as antiquated or untrustworthy, or who think religion in general has done more harm than good in the world. We look at these people and we fear, if we're honest, that some people are just too hardened, too far from God to ever come to faith. And our hearts despair over these people that we love. But this book says... Jonah reminds us that there is always hope because God who reigns over all life pursues rebels to the utmost. We've seen this in Jonah's life, that there is no place someone could go, nowhere they could hide from the sovereign rule of God. And now we see it in Nineveh. God has done what no one thought possible. There are so many incredible examples of God's faithfulness, and his pursuit of the lost that we could turn to. But a favorite of mine is recorded in a short book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. It's the story of her own conversion, which was perhaps as miraculous as anything we've seen in the book of Jonah. Butterfield was a professor living and working in upstate New York with her partner. She was successful, influential, and happy. 
She was content. She longed for nothing. So she had no reason to go looking for God. In fact, she considered Christianity a hypocritical and delusional habit that humanity simply hadn't rid itself of yet. In an article that she wrote in 2013, she makes that point clearly saying, stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. At one point, after publishing an editorial in her local paper about the dangers of Christianity that she considered, she received a letter from a local pastor. They began a correspondence, and that pastor and his wife invited her over for dinner. Before long, they became actual friends. Around the same time, she began work on a book project that would require her to read the Bible and offer critiques and criticisms. And she brought questions about the Bible to her new pastor friend. And though she didn't realize it, God was working in his mysterious way in her life. Months later, she began to ask herself in a whispered inner voice whether what she was reading in Scripture might actually be true. She didn't want it to be true, to be clear. She wanted to be able to say that she had looked at Scripture, examined it from a scholarly perspective, and found that its claims and the claims of Christians were wanting. She writes, I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the costs, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. She had everything to lose if she began to believe. Her career, her friends, her partner, her whole life was at stake. So why would she willingly give all of that up except that God was drawing her by grace to himself? And one day her heart toward him changed from one of hostility and opposition to humble repentance and joy that God does not give up on people who have run the other way. No one is too far gone. No one is beyond God's reach, so we must never give up. The book of Jonah is a refreshing and nourishing reminder that our God rules over the sea and the dry land, as Jonah said in the first chapter. There is no place that his rule does not reach. So our hope in what he might yet do is unyielding and unbreakable. There are those in my own life who I have been praying for since the day I became a Christian myself. A decade and a half ago. People who I will keep praying for, keep sharing the gospel with, Because Jonah reminds me that no matter how many times someone has scoffed at Christ, hope is not lost because his mercy and his compassion extend to the uttermost. No matter how many times someone has failed the test of faith in the past, fleeing from the presence of God, we never stop praying with the hopeful expectation that today might be the day that God softens a heart to hear and believe the message of life. God's reign extends over men like Jonah, over cities like Nineveh, over lives like yours and mine, and over the lives of those who do not yet know him. And he chooses to use that singular, unique, and unrivaled supremacy to draw the lost to himself, to give sight to the blind and life to the dead. Our God reigns over all, and he wields that power, his power, his supreme authority for our good and for our joy to soften hearts of stone, hardened by years of hard uh, and prideful independence in order to replace those hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, beating with the life 
granted by one perfectly just and endlessly merciful. This has been his work in my life and the life of everyone who knows him by faith. It is a humbling thing to consider that once we ran from him in defiance and pride, but it is a joyful thing to remember that his hand reached us there, in that dark place, to draw us near to himself in mercy and to to receive his joy in pouring out his mercy. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we hear these ancient words this morning about your servant Jonah and the people of Nineveh, let the truth and hope in these lines move our hearts to worship you for your sovereign rule, which you wield for the good of all your people, those who you draw to yourself by your merciful work. We know, Lord, that you have done this work in our own lives and that you continue to do it and that you call us to participate in the work that you are doing in the lives of others. So we pray that we would be encouraged by the ways that you have revealed your compassion in this book toward those who, apart from you, are living in darkness. We praise you today for your grace, for your glory, and for the gospel hope that we have today. We pray in the name of your Son and our Savior. Amen.